Listener Production. Remember when this video about IVF went viral a couple of weeks ago? Trust me, we have tried everything else. This is something that is a necessity. That video from Melanie Swikonek drew a lot of attention to Victoria's pause on IVF treatment. Days after it went viral, the government backflipped on the pause and reinstated the treatment. So in this episode, we're going to speak to Melanie about what that was like for her and then find out what other so-called elective surgeries urgently need to recommence. If you had a bushfire and you had all, everybody's houses burnt down, you go into a disaster plan. And essentially, we need to consider that sort of thinking. That's our briefing right after these headlines, for which I'm joined by Jan Fran. It is Thursday, the 3rd of February. Hello, everyone. We are going to start with Textgate today. And calls are growing for the senior minister who reportedly called the PM a quote-unquote complete psycho to be outed. I would suggest that if you know anything about this, don't wait to be outed. Out yourself and give an explanation. Oh my goodness, it sounds like something in the classroom, doesn't it? That's the Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce, of course. So on Tuesday, the Prime Minister was asked about texts allegedly sent between an unnamed minister and the former New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian, in which the Prime Minister was called a complete psycho and a horrible, horrible person. Now, apparently the text jam was sent almost two years ago at the height of the bushfire crisis. Yes, but the minute that a Prime Minister or anyone in power is asked about something as, I suppose, as scandalous as this and the source is anonymous, there is going to be speculation floating around and there is going to be people denying left, right and centre. So in the last 24 hours, a number of ministers or their spokespeople have come out and said, basically, it wasn't me. Now, that includes Foreign Minister Maurice Payne, Anne Rushton, Simon Birmingham, Karen Andrews, Angus Taylor, Linda Reynolds, Paul Fletcher. They're all in federal politics. In New South Wales politics, uh, the Premier, Dominic Perrottet, and Matt Keane are also denying it. Someone yes. did it, though. Yeah, it's um, the list is really thinning down of suspects, as more people say, um, wasn't me. The Prime Minister says he doesn't think it's a current cabinet minister, but Peter Van Onslan said it was. Um, when the Prime Minister was asked how he's sure of that, he said this. I have confidence. Yeah, I wouldn't have too much confidence in my fellow colleagues if they were leaking this kind of stuff about me. But I I would say I don't know if this is really a big story and I don't know if the public are really going to care about this. A lot of people have bitched about a colleague at at some point, maybe said things they didn't mean in the heat of the moment, Um, literally in the case of the bushfires potentially. So I don't, I don't know how important this really is. I think it's less about the context of the text, which were bad. Like, let's face it, you know, the PM being called a complete psycho and a horrible, horrible person by Gladys Berejiklian, when he calls Gladys his friend, you know, it does cast some questions about the nature of their relationship. Sure. I think the bigger issue here for the Prime Minister is that someone within the Liberal Party deliberately leaked this to a journo and they did so in the lead up to an election which shows that there's someone in that party that does not like the PM and frankly he doesn't need that when he's trying to win an election. Yeah it doesn't bode well for what's going on in that party room if that person is a current cabinet minister but yeah I guess we'll keep watching this classroom drama play out as we point the finger and wait for the person who's last left not to deny it. 
And an elite soldier has told the federal court in Sydney that Victoria Cross recipient Ben Robert Smith killed an unarmed civilian in Afghanistan in a raid in 2009. So Ben Robert Smith is suing the Age, the Sydney Morning Herald and the Canberra Times for defamation over a series of reports containing allegations of unlawful killings overseas and also bullying of colleagues and domestic violence. Ben Robert Smith denies these allegations. So the hearing resumed yesterday after long COVID delays and the unnamed SAS soldier told the court that Robert Smith ordered a colleague to kill an elderly man and that Robert Smith dragged a man from home and shot him in the back. A very um, interesting day of evidence. Uh, The newspapers, of course, are pleading a defence of truth. And the federal aged care minister has been grilled over his decision to go to the cricket for three days in January and not attend a Senate committee into aged care. Do you still think it was appropriate to attend the cricket? It was... Um, a decision that I made, I have to stand by it and live with it. That was Minister Richard Colbeck there. Um, He declined a request to attend the Senate Select Committee on January 14, saying he was busy dealing with Omicron. But as the Minister for Sport and a Tasmanian Senator, uh, he went to the cricket for three days on the Friday, Saturday and Sunday and said he was balancing his portfolios to attend that fifth Ashes test. I do have some some sympathy for that. They do seem like two very disparate portfolios. And I suppose if you have them both, you have to manage them in some way. The key issue I think here is that at the time, the aged care sector was dealing with more than a thousand COVID outbreaks. It was a really difficult time for the sector. And, you know, as you heard in yesterday's briefing, over 400 aged care residents died from COVID-19 in January in that very month, which actually surpassed the entire death toll for 2021. So it was a really key time there for the aged care minister. Well, I think this one's simple. He should have attended this Senate Select Committee. It was only via video link on the Friday and then go to the cricket on the Saturday and Sunday. There we go. That's how you balance portfolios, according to Tom Tilly. Grace Tame has broken her silence for the first time since the photos of her glaring at the Prime Minister at an Australian of the Year event were published last month. Yeah, Grace Tame's been accused of being childish for not smiling. Um, And in this statement on Twitter yesterday, she said that abuse culture is dependent on submissive smiles and self-defeating surrenders and that she has personally warned the consequences of civility for the sake of civility. She's been very, very critical of the federal government's response to allegations of sexual assault and of a very toxic workplace culture in Parliament, uh, and she said that what she did during that Australian of the Year ceremony or event was not necessarily act like a martyr, but just that many women are sick of being told to smile and conditioned to smile, and that just continues what she called the rotting status quo. And retail and hospitality is worse off than they were in March 2020 um, when they lost more than a billion dollars. This is according to the National Retail Association. So new data based in New South Wales shows there's also been a tenfold increase in the number of shifts being missed, hitting almost 12% of shifts. Um, normally that number's at 1% to 2%. Yeah, so businesses are calling for more support from 
the government, look, they've been unable to tap into the regular supply of international students that would normally work in the hospitality industry. Um, there's been two years of travel restrictions there. Uh, many workers have decided as well to resign and to take up jobs in the gig economy, which gives them sort of greater flexibility. And there's also mandatory vaccinations, which have wiped out 5 to 10% of the workforce there. So a number of issues um, facing retail. All right, Jam, we'll catch you tomorrow for the headlines. Uh, right now, Katrina's about to join us as we talk about elective surgery. Katrina Blouse is back as we bring you the briefing on elective surgeries. So when state governments pause elective surgeries to free up resources to handle COVID cases, it's actually a really huge deal to people waiting for those surgeries. Yeah, I'm not sure if many people know this. I only kind of um, really nailed this down recently, but elective surgeries include any procedure that doesn't need to be done within 24 hours. So that can include cancer procedures, even brain surgery. These are not luxury options. No, and probably not elective in that sense of the word to the people who are going through it. There have been various pauses during the pandemic with the majority of states putting some procedures on hold during the Omicron wave and the time frame and the categories differ state by state. And an emotional video that went viral really brought the message home for people who were going through IVF, which involves elective surgery. Other states excluded IVF from their pauses, but on January 5, the Victorian government announced that their pause on elective surgery included IVF. Anyone who saw that video by Melbourne woman Melanie Swakenick on Instagram a week and a half later just felt her pain. Uh, she posted it after learning her treatment will be put on hold for three months. To put a blanket ban on IVF for three months? <laughs> You can't have any idea what this will do to some women. So that video got nearly 2 million views and triggered a huge reaction. And within days, there was a backflip from the Victorian government and IVF procedures resumed. We're going to check in with Melanie and then we'll speak to a doctor about what other surgeries urgently need to recommence. Melanie, what was it like to see such a huge reaction to your post? It was truly overwhelming. And to be honest with you guys, I actually recorded that on um, a Saturday. On the Monday morning, I was actually going to remove it. I just, I'm I'm actually a private person. I only about six people in my life knew I was going through IVF. I'm not even sure if my father knew, to be honest. And um, I just felt as though I'd exposed myself and I was a little bit it was a bit too overwhelming for me. Overwhelming in a good way because the support out there still to this day uh, just is blowing me away. But it is a little bit heartbreaking to think that so many couples are affected by this. And I got it wrong in my clip. I said one in eight. Um, in Australia, it's actually one in six couples that are struggling with fertility. So it's really hit a nerve with, with a lot of people. Well, your um, Instagram post has had nearly 2 million views at last mm. count, so that's just bonkers. Uh, where, mm. So where were you at in your treatment when that, um. that Victorian government decision was announced? So I was already in prep. So there's a lot of prep that goes into um, an IVF cycle. So I'd already been prepping and um, obviously to have that just stopped. I, well, I was told to keep going on the weekend 
we all have totally different protocols and I'd already started with the testosterone. It's not great to just then leave your body with all this testosterone and nothing to do with it. Um, so I'd, I'd already started that two weeks prior. So you're supposed to start that two weeks prior to when you start your injections. So I'd been taking the testosterone for a good, you know, one and a half weeks up until that point. So you posted your video on the, mm. the Sunday and then um, it blew up by the Monday. Yes. And then how yeah. long did it take for the government to change their position? And did they speak to you directly in the meantime? Well, no, they didn't speak to me directly. And I really, you know, I wanted them to not because I was special or something, but just I kept thinking that I don't think they've spoken to someone going through this. If you can believe it, they actually made that decision without even consulting any doctors or fertility specialists. So we have, oh my gosh, we have the most amazing specialists in Melbourne and not one single one of them was consulted. They all received notification on that Friday that IVF was stopping and that was it. I found out on the Friday and I actually recorded that on the Saturday morning. So I hadn't slept. From the minute I found out, I just completely broke. I had not slept a wink and I just woke up on the Saturday morning and thought, I just want them to hear a story. Not in a million years did I think it would go viral. I thought, you know, just my 20 followers or whatever it was would see it. But I wasn't thinking rationally, put it that way. And that's what made me do it, I guess. By the Tuesday, it was all over the media and it was overturned on Thursday morning. Even now, I still get emotional because I, for the rest of my life, I will never forget that call. I just couldn't, couldn't believe it. Do you know that it was your video that helped change their mind? You know what? I, I think my video may have put it out there in the universe, but I tell you, it was every single person that liked it and shared it and comment on it. I think it was everyone that just pushed that video that actually did it, not me personally. <laughs> So people who don't know much about IVF, what mm. impact does pausing that kind of oh. treatment have? It's both physical and mental. And some women, that 90-day ban, it was three months, could have meant the end of their IVF journey. It really could have. I know for me, and I know it's out in the media now, I am 45. So treatment stops at 46. So every single month counts. There are some women that have medical conditions that they might only have one month left or two months left. So for them, that 90 day ban was truly could have been the end of their journey. So mentally, I mean, that's just to tell a, a couple that, you know, I'm sorry, but th this is the end for you um, to conceive you know, your, your own child is just, I mean, so devastating. I can't even think of those repercussions, to be honest. That would be so devastating. Mentally, it would have been just devastating for some couples. That was Melanie Swikonek. Uh, let's find out more about elective surgery pauses. As we discussed, Mel brought IVF to the fore, but there are many other surgeries that are really important. We should mention, Katrina, that most states have actually announced in recent days that they're already are about to unpause a lot of these surgeries as the yeah. Omicron wave plateaus, but we still have a massive backlog. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Chris Moy is the Vice President of the Australian Medical Association. And Chris, do you think there's a misconception about what elective surgery actually means? I think the word elective gives this perception that it's something that people are making a choice of, but that's clearly incorrect. Uh, what it means is often really essential surgery, and that might be things like major surgery for a hip or knee replacement where people have severe pain or disability, which they really need fixed, otherwise they won't be able to walk or they'll continue in severe pain. But it might also be things like a cataract surgery where people can't see, and so obviously they're, they're blind if they can't get their 
vision fixed. And also other conditions which uh, need a diagnostic procedure, it might be something like a colonoscopy, for example, where they need day surgery to have this procedure to just ensure, for example, that they may have bleeding from the bowel, but they may need it to ensure that they don't have cancer to try and catch it early so that you can get treatment. So this elective surgery label covers a lot of things which can either cause pain, disability, or be critical in actually making diagnoses and ideally early so you can have more urgent treatment for it before it gets worse. So state leaders have made this call, I guess they've said, because they needed to free up beds and free up resources. Do you think they've got the balance right overall? The thinking behind it was based on the fact that they needed three things. They needed potentially the beds, but in fact, actually what they really needed was the staff because during the peak of COVID, the biggest problem was was that so many people were ending up in hospital, but so many staff were getting sick that they didn't have enough staff, both for provision of treatment for patients, but also the whole vaccination effort, which needed staff to provide vaccination. The other thing they needed was potentially intensive care beds, because particularly in the eastern seaboard, particularly New South Wales, the concern was they were going to run out of intensive care beds. They're very, very rare beds. A major hospital, for example, only has usually about 60 intensive care beds. It became a blanket thing. So they they made this blanket decision to stop elective surgery because they needed the, the beds, the staff and potentially the intensive care beds. But the problem is, is that what they did was shift all the, the harm potentially from being able to treat people with COVID and protect those people. But suddenly all the, the problems shifted to those people who are waiting for elective surgery. And what we found over time, and this has been right over COVID, is already there was an increase in terms of the backlog of elective surgery. For example, for knee replacement, they had tripled in to, from about 11% to 32% for those people waiting for more than a year for it. So with Melanie's story, um, we really got a sense of how important IVF treatment was. And thankfully, in that case, it it was actually only the Victorian government that paused IVF. The other states carved that out of these pauses on elective surgery. But it showed how important IVF was to people. But I I guess it raised the question, what are the other really important procedures that, that need to be restarted as soon as possible? For example, Have cancer treatments and cancer surgeries been delayed and do they need to be looked at straight away? Well, some of them have been delayed, for example, in the Code Brown in Victoria, where, you know, that that went into another level where not only a ban of elective surgery, but potentially a ban on these almost urgent surgeries. Um, And certainly there are types of cancers which are, you might class, not quite as urgent in terms of the treatment, but by delaying it, you can affect the prognosis uh, because the cancer can progress and get worse and potentially get to a point where it can't be treated and then suddenly you get into a really terrible situation. And that sort of situation where IVF is concerned, where, for example, uh, for some people, it's a ticking clock. They, They may only have a certain amount of eggs left to be harvested to have children. So we've had the news come through in the last week or so that most of the states that have paused are moving to reinstate these procedures sooner than planned. Does this give you hope that we can turn this around or has the damage already been done? I mean, how long is it going to take to clear this backlog? 
the problem will be now it's the backlog. Certainly for some people, they, they will continue to pay the price irrespective because of the delay in treatment. If somebody's really struggling from a hip replacement and they're in severe pain and disability, they'll, they'll get weaker and weaker and it's harder for them to come back in terms of rehabilitation. We really need to get moving forward with it because this backlog now becomes a problem and both the state and federal governments really need to get onto it. I mean, the way I would be putting it is, is that if you had a bushfire and you had all everybody's houses burnt down, you go into a disaster plan. And essentially, we need to consider that sort of thinking. And there needs to be planning and investment, both on a national and state level, to understand that this is equivalent of the houses being burnt down after a bushfire. Uh, these are the people that are suffering. And if that was the case, we would put all stops to try and make sure that people are helped in this situation. And that's what needs to be considered. And that's what the AMA and the Royal Australian College of Surgery are calling for, an urgent plan for not only the resumption of elective surgery, but across both public and private, but also uh, whatever we can do to actually catch up as fast as we can with respect to the, the backlog. That was Dr. Chris Moy from the Australian Medical Association. I think that's a, a pretty reasonable call to ask for a plan on how we deal with the backlog. And I imagine that might include moving some of the public patients across to the private system for extra capacity. And then I guess what's also interesting about that balancing at Katrina about how we cleared up resources in our hospitals sort of ended up in a in a good position where the COVID projections were never as bad as we feared. Yeah, yeah. and I guess because they never experienced anything like it before, they had to go with that worst case scenario modelling. We keep hearing that this isn't our last pandemic, so... I wonder whether the next time we have one, whether they're going to look to that real life modelling or still go with that worst case scenario because they don't want to be caught unprepared. Tomorrow on The Briefing, we're going deeper on Brian Houston's decision to step down as the leader of Hillsong. Listener.